welcome back to the American Maritime Podcast. We're happy to have you aboard. I'm your host, Sada Fuentes, Secretary Treasurer of the American Maritime Partnership. In this segment, we're joined by Dr. Sal Mercogliano. Dr. Mercogliano is an Assistant Professor of History at Campbell University in North Carolina, where he teaches courses on maritime security and world maritime history. Dr. Mercogliano is also a former merchant mariner, having sailed and also worked ashore with the U.S. Navy's Military Sealift Command. Dr. Mercogliano, welcome. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Let's get started. Why don't you tell us a bit about your background with an emphasis on your national security experience? Sure. As you mentioned, uh, I was a former merchant, marine, uh, merchant mariner. I graduated from the State University of New York Maritime College, sailed and worked ashore for Military Sealift Command, but uh, always loved the idea of history. And it was during the first Persian Gulf War where I was a mariner that really raised the question for me is how do we do sea lift? How do we do the transportation of material in time of war? So after swallowing the anchor and coming ashore, I decided to pursue an academic career. I got my uh, master's in maritime history and nautical archeology span from East Carolina University, where I wrote a uh, master's thesis on the role of the merchant marine in national defense. I turned that into a book called The Fourth Arm of Defense. And then I went off and did a PhD uh, in military naval history at the University of Alabama, where my doctoral dissertation was on the role of the merchant marine in the 20th century. Uh, since then, uh, besides teaching as an adjunct at the uh, United States Merchant Marine Academy, I've been writing uh, both on the history of the merchant marine and on maritime industry policy. I'm a frequent contributor uh, to G-Captain. And after the grounding of the Ever Given in the Suez Canal in 2021, I host a YouTube channel, What's Going On With Shipping. Great. I'm a big fan and I'm a personal subscriber um, on a re <laughs> of, your, of your YouTube show, What's Going On With Shipping. And on a recent episode, you really broke down why a Jones Act waiver is a dangerous idea right now, especially in this current national security context. Could you tell our audience a little bit about your conclusions from that episode? Sure. So one of the issues that came up fairly recently was the announcing of the closing of the Red Hill fuel facility in Hawaii. This is a facility that was created in the midst of World War II uh, to provide the fuel depot that would provide the, all the fuel necessary for the Central Pacific Drive across toward Japan and in World War II. And interestingly enough, just a coincidence, I, I presented a paper uh, on World War I logistics, and particularly early World War I logistics before the Red Hill facility was in operation and how tenuous our fueling capability was to provide replenishment to naval vessels down in the South Pacific. And what it required was twofold. It required, number one, fast oilers. These are the ships that provide fuel directly to Navy vessels. And those fast oilers actually came from the U.S. Merchant Marine, a dozen ships built under the Merchant Marine Act of 1936 with national security features, twin screws, high speed, were brought into the U.S. Navy. And six of those ships really helped hold the line for the U.S. Navy in World War II. But behind them came a fleet of two dozen commercial tankers that were bringing fuel from the West Coast, from the Gulf Coast via the Panama Canal, all the way across the Pacific to replenish those underway replenishment vessels and to replenish stocks in new bases that were being set up around the world. And I think, again, what's typically missed 
in any analysis of World War II naval logistics is that merchant marine component. And you know, with the recent legislation coming out for the tanker security program, with the closing of the Red Hill facility in Hawaii, one of the things that really is important is that we have a fleet of US flagged tankers that can provide that type of logistics should a new peer-to-peer -peer conflict happen in the Pacific or in the Atlantic. And it's Jones Act tankers that would be called upon initially to provide that. Thank you so much. And it's really, you know, good timing to have your insight with tensions in the Pacific and tensions globally at such a high. So having your historical context is, is really valuable. So thank you, Sal. Um, as a historian, you really do have this unique perspective on the Jones Act and its history. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about why it matters that the United States has a domestic shipbuilding and a domestic maritime industry? Sure. So I, I think one of the first things about the Jones Act that's a huge misconception is that the Jones Act is Section 27 of the Merchant Marine Act of 1920, and that's the section that's cabotage, that you know only U.S. flagged, U.S. owned, U.S. crewed, and U.S. operated vessels can operate in the coastal wars of the United States. In 1920, when the Jones Act was created, it was what I would argue the nation's first comprehensive maritime strategy. There were elements in there that dealt not just with the coastal trade, but also international trade, shipbuilding, seamen's rights. Uh, there was a just a concophony of, of, of events that were all coming together. And this came out of the backdrop of 19, uh, the 1910s of World War I. In 1914, the U.S. was largely dependent for its international trade on foreign ships, particularly those of Great Britain and Germany. The coastal trade, thanks to previous iterations of cabotage, going back to the first Congress in 1817, all provided for U.S.-owned, U.S.-flagged, U.S.-crewed, U.S.-maintained vessels in the coastal trade. Then World War I hit, and initially in World War I, we remained neutral. However, German ships were run off the high seas because they were sought after for capture. Many were interned in the United States. British ships and other Allied vessels were diverted to go carry cargo for the Allies in World War I. What that meant was our international trade suffered. The cost to charter vessels increased 20-fold. The price for a ton of cotton increased 16-fold. And what we found out was without our U.S. Jones Act fleet that we call it today, but back then it was just the cabotage fleet, we would have been crippled economically. We had to take vessels that were in the coastwise fleet and shift them over into the international fleet. And I think, again, historically, what we tend to miss today is that a lot have been done over the past 50 years to, number one, you know, internationalize and deregulate international shipping. That is absolutely integrated into the coastal trade. Without building ships for the international trade, we cripple the ability to build ships for the U.S. merchant marine. And without that core U.S. maritime infrastructure, to build and repair, it doesn't just impact U.S. commercial shipping, it impacts the military, impacts the Navy. One of the reasons we're seeing issues with U.S. Navy ship construction right now is because our commercial ship building construction is down. If you go across to China, for example, you'll see the construction of the newest Chinese aircraft carrier, and right next to her in that same shipyard are new container ships being built at the same exact time. Well, does China have a, is China subsidizing a lot of these ships? Is that where that big competition is coming from in a way that the oh. United States government doesn't? 
I, I think you have to look at a lot of issues that, that are in there. I mean, if you look around the world today, the three largest builders of vessels in the world today are China, Korea, and Japan. 93%, according to the Review of Maritime Transport, the UN agency that puts this out, 93% of the world's ships are built there. There's not another country except for the Philippines that builds more than 1% of the world's tonnage. And if you look in those three countries, there are different government policies that are done. So for example, China heavily subsidizes. Chinese shipyards don't have to turn a profit. So you can see, for example, from the period from 2010 to 2018, uh, a CSIS report, Hidden Harbors, talked about the fact that $132 billion, and this is what they could locate, was given to subsidies to the Chinese government and their shipyards to build vessels. In the same time period, 2010 to 2018, the Maritime Administration, through their Title 11 shipbuilding, provided 77 million, not billion, million dollars. And that even that, I would argue, was very irregular. There's no way to plan for that subsidy money coming in. And, and you know, Korea and Japan do very similar things through direct subsidies, through ownership, through the yards in Japan. Again, one of the things we've realized is shipbuilding has to compete not on a level playing field, but an international playing field. Yeah, that certainly makes it tough to make it to, for a fair competition when you have that kind of that kind of competition and those kind of subsidies. So thank you. Moving on any given day in Washington, policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of people and organizations working behind the scenes. On 80 Proof Politics, a guest and I will visit a D.C. watering hole and distill the art of advocacy by pulling back the curtain a bit and taking a look at how they play their part in the sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? A little bit broader to look at kind of our current threat environment. What do you think the impacts on logistics, on our supply chain, and on maritime security are from what's going on in Ukraine right now? Yeah, I think the Russia-Ukraine war reveals several very interesting things. So, you know, just looking at, for example, the economic blockade of Ukraine, you're seeing a nation that's going to be economically crippled because a naval power is able to shut down access to ports to a nation. So you have that very overt military aspect. But in the case of Russia, I think it's even more interesting. So you have government sanctions, for example. You're having the, the, the nations of the United States, the European Union, Asian nations sanctioning it. But now we're seeing something new. We're seeing international corporations sanctioning Russia. We know about McDonald's and, and, and uh, Starbucks. But what's really interesting is the largest container companies, Maersk, Hophog, ONE, are basically initiating self-sanctionings against Russia. These companies, again, we have to remember the nine largest companies, shipping companies in the world, control 85% of all container shipment around the world. That means that when these companies decide to self-sanction, they're executing a foreign policy. They are denying the ability for Russia to import goods into their nation, which could mean in the future that should the United States execute a foreign policy decision that maybe a shipping company doesn't agree with, they may decide to self-sanction us. And we like to think we're the United States, we're the most powerful economy in the world, what would these shipping companies do? But understand, one of the things we've learned because of the supply chain crisis over the past few years is it only takes a few percentage of, of shipping 
you know, capacity to create bottlenecks, to create disruptions. If tomorrow the Chinese overseas shipping company, which is the state-owned Chinese shipping line, third largest in the world, decides to boycott the United States and focus on shipments to Europe and Asia and Africa and Australia, that could can potentially cripple the United States. And so, again, one of the things we're seeing here is really the necessity to have a core component of U.S. shipping where we can draw upon and use it to fill gaps when all of a sudden we need them for an emergency, natural disaster, or war. That's a great observation, Sal. And it sounds like it has real impl- implications for non-contiguous states like Hawaii and Alaska, who would be even more vulnerable in a scenario like you just outlined. I, I would argue, uh, sorry, it's, it's literally we're almost where we were in 1920 in some cases, where we established the Jones Act in the first place, where we were completely dependent on international shipping for our foreign commerce. The difference today, I'd mark, is we don't have that coastal fleet of big enough size and robust capacity, along with the shipbuilding infrastructure, to replace it that we need. So we're actually in a worse position today than we were 100 years ago. And you know, a lot of opponents of the Jones Act will sit there and say, well, there will never be another war where we have to call upon the Jones Act again. Well, again, I point you to Russia, Ukraine. Right, right. You never know what's next. Thank you so much, Sal. That was a really, a really insightful discussion. Uh, and before we sign off, can you tell us what other historical and national security contexts should our national leaders be aware of before they consider any waivers for the Jones Act? You know, I, I think you could take a look at a case right now that's happening real world, and that's the case over in England of P&O ferries. So P&O ferries, which operate the uh, Europe, uh, the English uh, British Isle ferry between Ireland and the European Union, one of the things that Great Britain did was withdraw from the European Union. They they conducted Brexit, and what has happened is P&O ferries, which had been a long stead component of Britain, you know, P&O ferries were used in 1982 to go down to the Falkland War. They pulled those ferries out of commercial service put them on a wartime footing. The civilian crews sailed those vessels down into San Carlos Bay, executed an amphibious invasion. They came under attack by Argentine aircraft, missile, a gunfire attack. And what we saw just happen with P&O ferries is the owner of that entity, which is an overseas company, Dubai World, decided to reflag those vessels from the British flag to the Cyprus flag. And then one morning, they announced that their ferries were going to stop sailing. They had their crews come ashore, watch a Teams video where they were all summarily fired that day and replaced by foreign crews that operate for a fraction of the price. Should that happen in the United States? Should a you know Jones Act waiver or repeal happen? That's going to happen across the U.S. merchant marine. And what you would see is those ships would be reflagged, those crews would be fired, and we would find ourselves with no vessels to go in our shipyards for shipboard repairs. And most importantly, we would lack the merchant mariners necessary to conduct a sea lift operation to crew the surge sea lift fleet held by the Maritime Administration Military Sea Lift Command. And we would really be at, at the whim of international companies and shipping to assist us. Yes, we could seize vessels, but if you don't have the crews to seize the vessels, if you don't have the experience, if you don't have the infrastructure, it does you no good. Right, right, and also with a terrible repayment of loyalty, you know, looking at your own experience and serving in the Persian Gulf War, it's clear that you can really count on those domestic mariners in a way that you can't ask those from another country. Oh, and I, I think that's one of the big things is that U.S. merchant mariners have, you know, ex, you know, exhibited that 
time and time again, you look at World War II, 733 ships sunk, 9,500 merchant mariners killed. They've done that in not just in wars. We've seen it executed in Korea. My study of the Vietnam War talked about the fact that 44 merchant mariners were killed in the Vietnam War. Ships, you know, over 11 ships sunk due to Viet Cong attacks during that time frame. We've seen American ships go into harm's way repeatedly, hence the uh, name on the flag in peace and war. And I think, you know, having American crews on American ships maintained in America, owned by American companies is important. I, you know, it, it's an impossibility to expect 100% of our cargo to be shipped on American ships. No one's asking that. But to have that core capability, that element, particularly in our coastal trade, is absolutely essential. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. McCogliano. Thank you for having me. That's all for this segment of America's Maritime Podcast. I'm Sada Fuentes signing off.